anti-scammers. Okay? Have you guys ever seen um, these videos on YouTube where these really smart people who are like anti-hackers, basically they get those fake calls from people and they call them back? It's so funny. So um, apparently how those scams work is all these people in like in India or whatever, they are like behind all these calls. I know, it's like legit. Um, and then they get on the phone with these people and these anti-scammers on YouTube, they're recording themselves. And it's like these just manly men, guys with long beards and, and strong looking guys. And then what comes out of their mouth is just like this really girly voice because they put a filter on it. So they act like a little old lady and they, you know, say, my name is Alice, you know, and they, they pretend to be an old lady. And uh, they keep these guys on the phone. One guy I saw kept this person on the phone for nine hours, okay? This anti-scammer was trying to keep the scammer on the line for like nine hours because what these scammers do is they'll call you and they'll tell you, hey, you owe such and such money and then they'll basically get you to open your computer. They'll have you download software and they will take control of your computer. They will like hide what's going on in your computer and they will literally steal money. And sometimes what they do is they add extra money into your account so that they make you freak out like, oh no, I did something wrong. And they'll say, oh no, this is a big deal. I know how we can fix it. Why don't you send $20,000 in cash to this place and then they go pick it up. And they basically get scamming people because what they do is they create a fake debt for these people that they feel like they have to like pay back. Because if you were told you owe us $20,000 because you did something wrong, you'd be like, oh no, like that's crazy. Okay, I need to make sure I pay this person. And if not, like I'm going to get in a ton of trouble. And what these scammers do is they play on these people's emotions and they create this fake debt that they have to pay. And it's interesting because when they do that, it really scares these people because they have this newfound debt that they think is their fault and they try to pay off. Well, the problem is sometimes when we look at what we're going to learn tonight, we kind of compare this debt to the debt that these scammers pull off. Sometimes when we look at the debt that we have towards God that's created by our sin, sometimes what people say is what I need to do is I need to do all that I can to pay that debt off. But the problem is what we're going to learn tonight is you can't do that. You don't have enough money. You can't afford to pay off the debt that we owe to God. And it's not a fake debt. It's not a, a scammer trying to tell you, and I'm not a scammer trying to tell you, you've got some debt that you've got to pay off to me. What I'm trying to tell you is there's a real debt that each and every person has towards God that we owe God. And the problem for us is we, we cannot pay that debt off. And we're going to see what happens when Jesus says, I paid that debt in full for you. So let's grab our Bibles. Let's turn open to John chapter 19. We're going to see that famous line really where Jesus says it has been paid in full. He has paid the penalty. He has paid the debt that we owe to God. So we're going to check this out in John chapter 19. Last week, what we talked about was Jesus before Pilate. So Jesus stood trial before Pilate, who was this Roman governor, kind of like a little king, not like the king of the empire, but he had a little kingdom that he was running for the Romans. And Jesus stood before him, and it was very obvious that Jesus actually had all the authority where Pilate didn't have any authority. That's what John tried to teach us last week. But as this has been going on, Pilate has delivered Jesus over, and Jesus has just been tried, and he's about to be executed. And I don't know what you think of when you think of executions, if someone today in America did something that was so bad that they had the death penalty served against them, the way that it works today is a lot different than it worked back then. So if a person was to do something that was so bad that they earned the death penalty and they were convicted for the death penalty, what would happen is they would end up getting what today is called a lethal injection, which what that is, is basically you get a shot with poison in it and you die pretty quickly and it's pretty painless. But back in the day, and especially what we're going to learn about tonight, what Jesus went through was more than just an execution. And sometimes when we look at this passage, our main focus is on the death of Jesus. And that's part of what we're going to talk about tonight. But what I want you to see is there's so much that led up to the death of Jesus. It was the suffering of Jesus that Jesus went through. And that's what we're going to see tonight. So check it, check it out. Verse 16, it says, after the Jews said to Pilate, we've got no king but Caesar. Pilate said, okay, I'm going to deliver Jesus over to be crucified. And that is the form of execution that the Romans did. Crucifixion. Okay? You might know it. Even the word crucifixion, you might just relate it to, oh, that's what happened in Jesus. Jesus was crucified. But I want you to think tonight about what that means. What does it mean that Jesus was crucified? What did it look like? What did it sound like? What did Jesus experience? And the reality is John doesn't actually give us much detail about it. In fact, John gives us the least detail 
of any gospel writer about the pain that Jesus went through. He gives us only a little bit. So we're going to have to fill in the blanks as we see this. Crucifixion. It was, you die on a cross, but how do you die? Is it that you bleed out? Is it that you can't breathe? Well, that's exactly what it was. It was that you couldn't breathe. The problem was when you were crucified and hung on this cross, you could not breathe. You'd have to pick yourself up and pull yourself down because naturally gravity is going to pull you down. You have to climb basically up this pole to breathe every time you breathe and then you come back down. So the longer you stayed alive, the more pain you felt. It was not necessarily a form of fast execution. Sometimes people would be crucified for days. And what the Romans would do often is they'd let these people um, get nursed back to health and then crucify them again and nurse them back to health and crucify them again until they died. So this was a horrible thing that was happening to Jesus. Jesus is actually a very fast death when it comes to crucifixion. But it says here in verse 16, he's led to be crucified. Verse 17 says, and he went out bearing his own cross, which is, might be a familiar picture. Maybe you've seen pictures about that at Easter time or Good Friday, imagining Jesus carrying this wooden beam. But that's what he did. It says he carried it to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there he crucified him with two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. And what we don't see here, but John wants his readers to know, is that what Jesus is doing here is he's fulfilling prophecy. Okay, that's going to be a common theme, but two prophecies that Jesus has already fulfilled right here is he's going outside the gate. Okay? The place called Golgotha was not inside the city limits. It was outside. And the reason you did that was in the Old Testament, the sacrifices, a lot of them were done outside the gate. Leviticus 24 verse 23 says that if a person was going to be executed, and the Jews usually did it by stoning. So if they're going to be executed, what you would do is you would send them outside the gate. It's like this big shameful process. And even on the way, as he carried his cross, which John doesn't give as much detail, but if you could imagine, Jesus is carrying this cross while everybody gets to see him. Totally exposed, totally made fun of, totally insulted, totally humiliated by everybody on his way to this place outside the gate. Also, he's put between two criminals and I want you to imagine how horrible that is. I don't know if you've ever thought how you want to die. Um, probably you've never thought that before. Um, but ways that you want to die, you probably don't want to die being put next to two criminals. And you look like one of them. That's, that's the point. Pilate's doing this, including these other people, because he wants them to see that this guy, yeah, he, he's just like a criminal. He's just like everybody else. It was a horrible thing that Jesus went through. And even that, though, fulfills prophecy. Isaiah chapter 53 Verse 9 says, they made his grave with the wicked. When the suffering servant's going to die, he's going to die along with all these sinners. It's going to look like he's one of them. Verse 19, Pilate says that he did something here. It says, Pilate also wrote an inscription. And sometimes what these people would do is as criminals, you'd look at the criminal and say, wow, that person's being crucified. I wonder what they did. Well, in order for everyone to see what they did, sometimes what they'd do is make a little necklace and they'd have these people wear this big necklace. You can imagine uh, like a big sign that they'd wear on them that kind of had a, a neck strap that told everybody what their crime was. And imagine how shameful that'd be. Like imagine if you were a thief that you stole from the king, right? That, that thing across your chest that was dangling on your neck as you walked by, everyone could see it. Thief. That's why that person's dying because they're a thief. Well, the problem is Pilate doesn't have any charge to crucify Jesus, he didn't do anything wrong. Pilate already said that. So what does Pilate write? Look what he writes here. This is the inscription that everybody was going to see and say, this is this guy's crime. Here's what it said. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Wow, that doesn't sound like a crime, does it? Well, that's exactly Pilate's point. He's making fun of the Jews because he's saying, look, I'm crucifying your king. And I think he's also making fun of Jesus here too. Say, so, yeah, that's your, that's your only charge. That's all you did wrong. It's horrible what happens here. It says the... The inscription, many of the Jews read it. That's verse 20. Many of the Jews read this inscription. For the place where Jesus was crucified was near to the city. So it's right next to the city, right outside the gates. And it was written in three languages, it says. Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. And why do you think it might be written in all three of those languages? What does Pilate want to do? And Pilate wants everyone to see this. He wants the people who speak Greek to see this. He wants the people that only speak Latin to see this. He wants the people that can only speak Aramaic. He has it in three different languages just to show everybody what's going on, which is interesting because Jesus, as he's dying on the cross, his charge, king of the Jews, is open for everyone to see. Everybody sees why he's being crucified here. Verse 
21, the chief priests, they don't like that he's called the king of the Jews. They go to him and say, Pilate, don't write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I'm the king of the Jews. There's a big difference there, right? Because Pilate's like saying, oh, he is the king of the Jews. The Jews are like, no, 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 he's not our king. He's not our king. And Pilate, what does he say? He says, I've written what I've written. I'm not changing it. So even this, there's all this fighting going on between Pilate and the Jews because of this. Verse 23 says, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, which is interesting. We find out here there were four soldiers crucifying Jesus, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. So it seems like he had five articles of clothing. A lot of people debate what it is, maybe a belt, maybe an outer garment, whatever it was, but it seems like if they divided his clothes up evenly and they had one thing left over, the most valuable thing, the tunic, right? This thing that was all woven in one piece. Instead of ripping it into four parts and giving it, they said, you know what we should do? We should cast lots. We should basically gamble to see who can, who can take this. So it says in verse 24, so they said to one another, let us not tear it. We don't want to do that, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. And John mentions this was to fulfill the scripture, which says they divided my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. That's actually a quotation from Psalm 22:18, where David talks about how he, in his life, it's like his whole life is crumbling around him. And what John says is that was like looking forward to what happened to Jesus. I'm actually gonna read two verses that surround that. Verse 16 of Psalm 22 says, for dogs encompass me. It's like I'm being surrounded by a bunch of dogs. Could you imagine being surrounded by a bunch of like um, pit bulls and German shepherds that all their teeth were big and at you and saliva was coming down them? be horrible. It'd be scary. It says, it's like dogs have encompassed me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. Like, I, like I'm here and I'm pierced, but like I'm, I'm safe, but like I'm being attacked. Like this is scary. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. What John says is that writing that David had so many years ago, a thousand years before this, says that was really in the effect about Jesus too. Verse 25, it says, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Now, there's some confusion there. It sounds like there's three ladies, right? You've got Mary, obviously, his mother, and his mother's sister, also named Mary, right? I don't think that's what he's saying. I don't think, could you imagine naming two of your daughters Mary? Probably not, right? So it seems like four people are being described here. You've got Mary, so that's Jesus' mom, then Jesus' aunt, so Mary's sister, then another lady named Mary, and another lady named Mary. So Mary was a popular name, I guess. Um, that seems pretty obvious here. Mary was a popular name. These four ladies are standing by Jesus. They're the closest ones to Jesus here. It says, when Jesus saw his mother, which you gotta stop for a second and think, what would it be like for your mom to be there watching you go through this? What would it be like to be a mom, watching your kid go through this. That might be harder for us to understand, right? Because we you know, don't have kids. You're on the kid's side of this. But imagine your mom was watching all this happen to you. Watch you get tortured. Watch you get spit on. Right? What would she feel about this? It'd be horrible. That's exactly what John is describing here. It says Jesus saw his mother. And he also saw a disciple whom he loved, which we think is actually the author of this book, John. And he said to his mother, this is Jesus talking, woman, behold, your son. He's not talking about himself. He says to the disciple, behold, your mother. What he's saying is, hey, Mary, mom, this is your son now. John, he's your son now. Hey, John, hey, look over there. That's your mom now. He's basically saying, you need to take care of her because I'm about to die. It's another prophecy and another thing that shows that Jesus is in complete control of this whole situation. And it says, from that hour, that disciple took her home into his own home. So John, it seems like for the rest of his time, he took care of Mary until she died. He basically became the adopted son uh, of Mary. I just want you to see that all these things leading to the cross, what is the main theme of all of this? You see Jesus suffering. Jesus suffering with Pilate. Jesus suffering as a criminal. Jesus suffering, um, being made fun of as the king of the Jews, even though he really was the king of the Jews. Jesus suffering, having his garments taken away from him. Jesus being mocked and ridiculed. Jesus suffering by having his mom and all these people witness all this terrible stuff. Jesus is suffering. And the problem is, if what we think of when Jesus died on the cross, if what you think of when you think of that is simply that Jesus expired 
or that Jesus gave up his spirit, or that Jesus died, you miss the main part of what he was doing on the cross. What Jesus was doing on the cross was not just dying, okay? There's a lot of ways he could have died, but what Jesus did on the cross was suffering, and there's a big difference between the two. Suffering and dying are different, okay? Obviously, suffering can lead to dying, right? But you could die without suffering. What we see here is Jesus suffers, and he dies, but there's a theological reason why he suffers. And by theological, I mean that God has a reason for him suffering. In the rest of the Bible, we looked at this passage last week, but Isaiah 53.10 says it was the will of God to crush the son. And when Jesus died, what Isaiah 53 says and the whole New Testament says is that Jesus was bearing the punishment for your sin and for my sin. That Jesus was sinless, perfect, he did not deserve to go through any of this. But the New Testament also shows that we actually, we deserve this. We deserved to be the people who were punished for our sin. Jesus didn't. But in this moment, in this afternoon that we're studying right here, this Good Friday moment, Jesus was taking the shame, the suffering, and God's punishment for your sin and for my sin on himself. Point number one is this. would love for you to write this down. Realize that Jesus suffered in your place. He did not just die in your place. Jesus suffered in your place. And if you realize that he did that in your place, one of the things you have to realize is that you deserve to be there. Think about that. If you really believe this right here, that Jesus suffered in my place, what you're saying when you say that is I deserve to suffer in his place. That's what I deserve. And the problem is for most of us, that is like doesn't make sense. Like you're telling me that just because I haven't been a great person all the time that I deserve all this shame? I don't deserve that. Most of us don't put ourselves in these shoes and say, yes, that's exactly what I deserve. The problem is when we do that, when we think our sin is not a big deal, or maybe what we do is compare our sins to one another and say, well, at least my sin's not as bad as their sin, right? Maybe I would just be mocked, not crucified. Like maybe they deserve to be crucified, but not me. The thing we miss in all of this is that God says, and specifically this act of Jesus dying, God makes it very clear in the scripture that this was for your sin and for my sin. So when we look at this, God said that this is for our sin. What that shows us is this is what we deserve. Right? I, I, I just really think, if you stop to think about that, is the, do I think I really deserve this? Do I think I really deserve to be killed for my sin? Most of us would say, no, no, no. Like, maybe a punishment maybe a timeout, but I'm not that bad of a person. The problem is when we say that, we're missing who God is, okay? God is so perfect, so good, so righteous, that our sin that we might not think is very big, the amount of sin, the effects of our sin are so big, bigger than we realize. And when we see the cross and we see Jesus dying on the cross, one of the things it needs to remind you, as it reminds me, is I deserve this right here. I deserve this. That's how bad my sin is. That if God punishes my sin right here, then that guess this is what I deserve right here. I just want you to really think that. That might sound hard to believe, but I think that's what this is teaching here. The New Testament also says this all over the place. A couple of verses for you to write down. Uh, one of them is 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. 1 Peter 3, 18. Here's what it says. It says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. And he'd later on take back his life. He suffered once for sin. So whatever payment, and I want you to think about this, whatever payment that was made for your sin, it happened right here. That's the only payment for your sin that you can rely on right here. That's it. it. It happened right here. And it was when Jesus suffered. When Jesus died, we're gonna find out later, he says a phrase, one word in, in Greek, it is finished, okay? It's over, it's accomplished. So what is he doing in verses 16 to verse 27? He's suffering. He's taking on God's punishment for your sin. And if you think about this, this is crazy. How and you probably know this, how can a person bear their own sin? What happens for a person 
who has to be punished by God. Like, what, what does that take for a person, right? What does God do to punish sin for people, right? Well, hell, right? Hell is the thing that God uses to punish sin. Now, think about it. So, so you're saying that God's justice is expressed in eternal hell, okay? And also, it's expressed here in Jesus's death in an afternoon. How can Jesus go through that much punishment in one afternoon to take the just penalty for everyone who trusts in him? Okay? How is that possible? Okay? That's one of the mysteries of the Bible, but something that's very clear that Jesus, being so perfect and experiencing such wrath from God in this one afternoon, that that is sufficient, that is capable for saving your soul. That payment for sin guilt that's happening right here, the suffering is able to save you so that you never have to suffer away from God. Like, that's huge. And that's what we're, we're learning right here. And that's what th this text is teaching us. Another passage for you. 2 Corinthians 5.21. This makes it very clear too. It says, for our sake, God made him, Jesus, to be sin. Doesn't say that God made him a sinner. Right? He didn't, Jesus was not a sinner. But God treated Jesus like a sinner. Even though he knew no sin, he didn't do any sin. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. It's a trade. It's a substitute. Jesus suffered in your place. What that's talking about is a substitute. Galatians 3.13 also says something similar, but it, it takes it from a different angle. It says that Christ redeemed us from the curse. The curse, that's a big theology word. For those of you in train, you, you studied this word. The curse and the fall. The fall and the curse. What does it mean? The curse is the consequences for our sin. It says Christ redeemed us from that curse by becoming a curse for us. There's a trading of places that happens here. That's what I want you to see. When we read all this about Jesus suffering, Jesus being mocked, Jesus being flogged, Jesus being spit on, his garments being taken, his mother crying in front of him, the reality that you should reckon with and I need to reckon with, we all need to reckon with, is that that is what I deserve. That's what I deserve. Jesus swapped places with me. I deserved to be there. Jesus didn't. But Jesus went there so that I didn't have to go. That's a substitution. That's what's happening here. It says that Jesus became a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And even that, right? He's fulfilling so many prophecies in this one moment. Deuteronomy 21 verses 22 to 23 talk about how if you hang someone on a tree, if someone's killed, executed on a tree. That's a curse. That person's cursed. Jesus hung on a tree for you, for me. That's what John is trying to teach with all this. It's so compact. So I know there's a lot of verses we're going to write down tonight, but it's because John is teaching something that's so compact. And the thing that I want you to see more than anything else is this is what I deserved right here. Jesus suffered in my place. Back to verse 28. Look at John 19, 28. It says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, basically saying all the prophecy, all this stuff that's, that's been going on, now it's finished. It, it, it's coming to a close. He's only got about 30 seconds more of life. Knowing that all is now finished. He said, also, John mentions, to fulfill prophecy, which I think is the big emphasis that comes over and over again. He says, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And there's so much symbolism right there. And it says that he did this to fulfill prophecy because in Psalm chapter 69, verse 21, Psalm 69, 21, it says about David again, another thing that he went through. He says, they gave me poison for food. And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. When you think of sour wine, what I want you to think of is vinegar, because that's basically all this was. It wasn't like um, anything that you wanted to drink. It was like what you clean the toilets with, or I don't know if you clean the toilets with vinegar, but like, you know, it's, it's just gross. It just smells weird, and you know, it, it's awful, right? And, and it's actually interesting, because when you look at this, you might say, wait a minute, I thought someone offered Jesus a drink, and he said no to it, 
right? The other gospels talk about that. This is a different drink. That drink happened early on in the crucifixion, and we think that that drink was really um, like, a, like a drug. It was basically meant to be like a painkiller. So what they would do is these old ladies, they would make these, these painkillers and, oh, like, let me give you some, uh, some drink. It has like, it's like a Motrin. It has some painkilling element to it. it. It kind of dulls the senses. Jesus said, I'm not taking that because what I'm doing here is I'm suffering God's wrath for people's sin. But here at the end, at the end of everything, now all has finished. It's about three in the afternoon at this point. Jesus takes that sour wine to fulfill Psalm 69. He says he thirsts. It says when Jesus had received the sour wine, this vinegar, I mean, he drank vinegar at the end. That's basically what happens here. He doesn't drink vinegar because he wants a drink of vinegar. He drinks vin- vinegar so that his throat, which has been completely parched, no water, nothing. As he's been completely dehydrated, as he's lost a ton of blood, as he's dying, as you can imagine, a hot, sunny uh, Friday afternoon as it was coming on with all these dark clouds that afternoon. As his lips are chapped and his mouth is completely dry, he can barely speak. So what he needs is vinegar to put on his throat so he can say one last word. And here's the last word he says. It is finished. Tetelestai is the word, one word says, and he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. There's so much in that one word because what that word means is not only it's over because it means that a little bit, it's over, but it means more than that. That word, it is finished. What that word means is that I have accomplished it. I've paid the debt. It's over. What's over? Jesus's payment for sin. And I would just want you to see when Jesus says this right here, all the sins that Jesus will ever pay for are done right here. When Jesus says it is finished, it's over. So if you're a person who trusts in Christ, all of your sin right there is done, paid for. When he said it is finished, he said the debt is paid in full, completely done. The synoptic gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what they include here is a thing that John doesn't include, but they say that when Jesus said this at that very moment, when he gave up his spirit and died and he said it is finished, guess what happened over there in the temple a couple miles east? What happened was, the temple veil, that big important thing that kept out from the holy, from the unholy, all of that, it ripped in half. A miracle. And that was to show that God was done with that ceremonial system because now the Passover lamb, the real Passover lamb, had just died. He'd just been sacrificed. So like when he says this, and I want you to, to really grasp this, when Jesus says it is finished and he died, At that point, his suffering for sin, which took place over the course of an afternoon, his suffering for your sin, for your lying, for your disobedience, for all of that, it it was accomplished. That's what he's saying. It is finished when he died. He bowed up his head. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit, which is another thing. The, The Bible does not usually talk about dying in the form of giving up your spirit. Again, what do you see Jesus doing? Laying down his life. It's not taken from him. Even the fact that it says he bowed his head and gave up his spirit, that's a unique phrase. That's not usually how the Bible talks about dying. It usually says that their spirit is done, not, yeah, I gave it up. Jesus gave up his spirit. John 10, 18 said, Jesus said this in John 10, 18. He said, no one takes my life from me, nobody. I lay it down of my own accord. I've received authority to lay it down, and also I've received authority to take it up again. And this is the charge I've received from my father. Verse 30, sin paid for, accomplished right here. Now look what happens. Verse 31, since it was the day of preparation and that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. You might say, why would they break their legs? Well, if you think about this crucifixion and if you had to keep breathing by pushing yourself up and down this pole, if, you're, if someone takes a big hammer and breaks your knees, guess what you can't do anymore? You can't go up and down anymore, so you can't really breathe anymore. So you die a slow death right there, but it happens a lot faster because now you can't move up and down anymore, so you're done. It says, the Jews wanted to get these deaths over with. So he says, just go, go break their legs. I mean, think how gross this is, how horrible this is, what they're saying. When he says that, the soldiers, verse 32, so the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first, both legs, which is interesting, broke the legs, both legs, not just once, but twice. One smack, two smacks. This guy's gonna die pretty fast. And the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. 
So Jesus had accomplished the sin payment in verse 30. It was over. It was done. He was dead. So they didn't break his legs because they didn't need to because breaking the legs was all about them moving up and down, but he was already dead. But one of the soldiers came, and we're not sure why he did this, but it said he came and he pierced his side with a spear. And at once there came out blood and water. Now, this is an interesting thing because we don't really know why John includes this other than he's the only gospel writer that includes this. Um, there's a lot of guesses at like what that means. Um, some people say if there's a lot of stress that you build up, you can have certain body fluid that stays between your lungs and, and some of your linings. And there have been people who under extreme stress have made up to two liters of body fluid that if they were pierced, it would come out. We don't know really what was going on here. Maybe this was miraculous. We don't know. But the point is that John is trying to emphasize to his readers, Jesus was dead, really dead. That's what, he wasn't kind of dead. He was really dead. The resurrection, which shows, the next time when we study the resurrection, this was not like a, he kind of like fainted and he like woke up again. No, he was really dead. This is also important because a lot of people at that time didn't even believe that Jesus was a real person. They thought that maybe he was just some spirit being who came down to earth and went back up into heaven. That was a, a false teaching called Gnosticism or Docetism. There was two, two different types of that. And a lot of them believed that, yeah, Jesus wasn't even a real person. John writes this to show, no, no, he was a real person. He really did die. Blood and water came out when he died. Verse 35, John says about himself, he says, he who saw it has borne witness. He's talking about himself. His testimony is true. And he knows that he's telling the truth. He's saying, I'm an eyewitness to this. I saw it happen. I saw when Jesus had the spear rammed into his side and blood came out and water came out. He's telling the truth. Why does he tell the truth? That little phrase, that you may also believe. John wrote this down, this whole gospel, but especially even this phrase, so that you would believe that this really happened. This is eyewitness testimony. This is not some fanciful, you know, mythological book like people at school might tell you. No, this is eyewitness testimony. By John, he saw it. He was right there. Verse 36, for these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. You see how this keeps coming up? Prophecy is being fulfilled here. The Old Testament promises. It says not one of his bones will be broken. But you might say, where does that come from? Where, where does it say the Messiah is not gonna have a bone broken? Well, I think that comes from Exodus 12, 46. Exodus 12, 46. And I think what that's really about is not so much the Messiah not having a bone broken, but Exodus 12 is describing the Passover lambs that were a sacrifice for the people. Those bones, they did not break any bones on the Passover lamb. You might say, what does this have to do with the Passover? That was that important feast where the lamb died in the place of the firstborn. The animal took on the guilt and they died instead of the, the people. Jesus is the Passover lamb. That's what's trying to be described here. The bones, they're not broken. You know when this took place right here? When Jesus' bones were not broken? At the very time, the lambs in the city of Jerusalem were being killed and the bones were not being broken. This happened during the week of Passover, which by the way, is this week right now. You are in the week of Passover right now. Passover goes from Saturday to Saturday, March 27th to like April 5th or whatever that is, 4th. You're in the Passover week right now. Obviously, because the temple is not still standing in Jerusalem, these things are not happening exactly how they used to be. But if there was a temple standing, there would be lambs right now being killed without bones being broken. That, that is exactly what happened here in Jerusalem, and that's what happened to Jesus. So what's John trying to say? He's trying to say, Jesus is the Passover lamb. He's a sacrifice for you. What else? Verse 37. He said this also fulfilled another scripture. as they will look on him whom they have pierced. That's from Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. That passage says that in the future, God will pour out on the house of David or the people of Israel and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. He's gonna give these people a chance to repent so that when they look on me, on me, the author says on me, whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. They shall cry. They're going to realize they killed him as one mourns for an only child. And they shall weep bitterly over him as one weeps for a firstborn. Right? Who's talking here? Right? God speaks here, but who's talking really in Zechariah 12, 10? Is it father, son, or spirit? Well, this is the son. Jesus speaks in Zechariah 12, 10. 
It says that one day people will look on me, the one that they pierced, and they will weep and they will cry. And I'll give them a chance to repent. This is, a, I think, a really specific promise about what's gonna happen in the future for some of these Israelites. They're gonna look on Jesus. They're gonna realize, I killed Jesus. And that sentiment right there, that I'm responsible for the death of Jesus, is exactly what the apostles preached in the book of Acts. It says that we are responsible for the death of Jesus. And I want you to realize, I am responsible for the death of Jesus because he suffered in my place, as we talked about before, but also point number two, that he's a sacrifice for you. Point number two, rely on the sacrifice of Jesus to pay for your sins. When Jesus said, it is finished, that's financial language. That's like saying the debt has been paid. It's over, it's accomplished. But not just it's done, but it's done and I did it. It's I accomplished it, I achieved it. Salvation for you has been achieved when Jesus said it is finished. It's over. It's done. I want you to imagine that tonight, I know we were playing outside a lot, but I want you to imagine that you and your friends were playing spike ball or playing uh, volleyball or football or pickleball, whatever you guys are playing outside tonight, and um, this really expensive car rolled in the church parking lot, a Lamborghini, right? Really cool Lamborghini. It's got like paint that changes colors, different lights. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, you've probably seen those type of Lamborghinis, right? It rolls in. You're like, I wonder what that's doing there. And um, as it goes in, you're like, ah, I think that's a fake Lamborghini. Let, let's, uh, let's test it out. I saw some of you guys throwing water bottles tonight. I don't know why you thought that was a fun thing to do. But um, why don't you imagine you see the Lamborghini and you're just like, I'm just going to throw a water bottle at that car. So you just take, just take this uh, half-drunk water bottle and you just throw it as hard as you can at the Lamborghini and uh, uh, you find out that it's real um, because, um, yeah, the Lamborghini, it, the, the side window, it just explodes, bursts. You're like, whoa, that's not good. And as, you know, the Lamborghini is just kind of parked out there outside as you just were trying to test and see if it's real, um, how much do you owe to fix that Lamborghini? Uh, I don't know, a lot of money, like a couple thousand dollars probably to replace a, a window like that. McGill could tell us, I don't know, like a lot of money. What do you think? Give me, give me a rough estimate. How much money do you think it would cost to, I don't know, replace a really nice window in a Lamborghini? Okay, a thousand bucks, great. Um, so you owe a thousand bucks at this point, but you're like, you know what, now that I'm all in on this, I'm going to break all the windows. So you and your friends, you go over there, you know, you grab your phones, right? And you can use your phone as a weapon, right? Have you, you know this, right? Self-defense class. You can use your phone as a weapon because it, it's really hard. Um, and you guys just start busting in all the windows, right? Now this Lamborghini that, you know, changes colors and different lights. Um, now it has all the windows are gone. You know, like, you know, it'd be sweet. We're already all in. Um, so uh, let's just see how much dents we can put in it. Let's give Mark McGill some business. So let, let, let's just grab, you've uh, got hammers here, axes here. Yeah, yeah, let's, uh, let's go do it. So you and your friends, you go and you start taking out this Lamborghini, right? Now how much do you owe? Well, a lot more now, right? Because you just kept doing it, right? You owed some, now it's just like you just keep relentlessly just adding on to the damage, adding on to the damage. And you do that, right? Until the Lamborghini is completely destroyed. You total it. Then you say, you know what? I'm gonna like, firebomb this. And then you're like, I don't know how you even firebomb a car. Um, even if I did know, I probably wouldn't tell you right now because the law brings forth sin. Um, so I wouldn't even tell you, but you light the car on fire, right? The engine is burning. I don't know even have to, an engine can burn, right? Uh, I don't know. Um, the gas that you, you get, you throw a lighter in the gas tank. I don't know, like crazy stuff, right? Because you're just like, I'm already all in on this, right? So I'm just going to destroy the Lamborghini. So now the girls are like, what just happened outside? Like, why are all these guys attacking the Lamborghini, right? Now it's on fire. Like, what is happening right now? So now you ask the question, well, now how much do I owe? Well, I guess it doesn't matter now. Because I owe so much, I'm just going to keep destroying it, right? And then it explodes. And we all go out and we're like, what happened to Lamborghini? It's like, yeah, that's me. I did it. Um, then the owner comes out, right? <laughs> the owner of Lamborghini comes out. And it's like, oh, interesting. Um, what happened here? Uh, why do you hate my car so much? You kind of destroy my car, right? And imagine that person came up to you. You're responsible. 
You got the people together. You broke the first window. You busted the things in. You grabbed the ax. You put the lighter in the gas tank and it exploded. You did all that. You're responsible. Imagine owner comes to you, takes out of his back pocket another pair of keys, says, the one over there, that one belongs to you. You'd be like, that doesn't make any sense. What are you talking about? I just destroyed your Lamborghini. I just destroyed, like, I owe so much money. He says, yeah, yeah, I, I, I paid for it. Done. You get, and you get, and you get a Lamborghini for destroying a Lamborghini? Like, it doesn't make any sense, okay? That right there, that's a picture of what happens with salvation, right? It doesn't make sense that you're the one responsible for destroying the most valuable thing in the universe, that I'm responsible for killing Jesus, that you're responsible for your sin, for killing Jesus, that you now get to trade places with him and you get all the benefits of every good thing he ever did, but now he takes all your sin. That, that is why right there, to a lot of people, Christianity does not make sense. But that exchange, that unbelievable exchange, hard to even fathom exchange, similar to what happens. Book of Hebrews puts it like this. Hebrews 9.22 says, without blood, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That's how it worked in the Old Testament with the sacrifices, but more specifically, that's how it works with Jesus. You can't be forgiven of a blood guilt without Jesus and his blood. Earlier on in the book, John chapter 1, verse 29, it was one of the first sermons we ever did here in the book of John. John the Baptist actually looked at Jesus and he said, look everybody, behold, it's the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God. You might say, oh, that must mean he was, you know, short and fluffy, right? That's not what he's saying about Jesus. He's saying, no, no, he's the Lamb of God because what that means is he is going to take away the sin of the world. It means he's going to die for you. It means he's going to suffer for you. That means he's going to trade places with you. That when he suffers and he dies, he's trading places with you. The problem is, some of us think that we can do something to add to this salvation or to earn this salvation. All that you've done to earn salvation, all that you've done, right? and a lot of people have said this before me, all that you brought to this equation is you brought the sin. That's all you brought to it. You do not bring any righteousness to God because your righteousness is not good enough. Jesus pays the debt for your sin and he also gives you the perfect righteousness so that you can put on his righteousness and walk into God's kingdom, forgiven. It doesn't make any sense without what happens here on the cross. You can't do anything to earn forgiveness. Jesus accomplished forgiveness. You can't do anything to earn salvation. You are stuck. Jesus has to do something about it. What do you do? What does Jesus do? Well, Jesus applies that payment for sin to you. The Bible is very clear. When does he apply that payment of sin to you? When you trust in him, when you trust him, when you say, I can't contribute anything to my salvation. I need Jesus to suffer and die in my place. I need to trust him. And you do trust him. And you stop trusting yourself and you start trusting him. Then he takes all of that merit and good stuff that he did and all that payment for sin and he pays for it for you. It's done. He applies it to you. When this happens, and this is all public, right? Everybody sees this. When this happens, uh, there's two people that come out of the crowd, so to speak. In verse 38, check out verse 38 of John 19. It says that there's two people that kind of showed up that were kind of laying low for a while. These two people, one of them's name was Joseph. It says, after these things, after all this happened, there's a person named Joseph, a man named Joseph, who was a disciple of Jesus. That means he was a follower of Jesus, but he was a secret follower. It says, but secretly, for fear of the Jews. He was like, he wanted to kind of be associated with Jesus, but he didn't really because he thought if he stood up for Jesus before that people would kick him out of the synagogue and people would make fun of him. But when he saw all this, it said he came to Pilate. He asked him, hey, can I take the body of Jesus? And Pilate gave him permission, which is not normal. Crucified people do not get a burial. You get a group burial. They usually put them in a group burial and they burn their bodies. They don't even get a burial. As Pilate gave him permission, and so he came and took away his body. And there's another guy, verse 39, Nicodemus also. We remember Nicodemus, who earlier had come to Jesus by night in John chapter 3. When Jesus says, John three sixteen, 
right? That was to a guy named Nicodemus. The guy who came to him at night, was, was afraid to really talk to Jesus in the daytime, so he comes at night. It says, he came with a mixture of mirth and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight, 75 pounds worth of spices and embalming material to come to Jesus. That was enough embalming and spices to, to use for a really, really rich person. Joseph gives a tomb. Nicodemus gives all these spices. It's like, where were they before? Why weren't they standing up for Jesus, right? It doesn't really say. But it seems like after seeing what Jesus did, they took courage. They were bold. And they said, we're going to stand up for Jesus now. Verse 39, so they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now the place where he was crucified, well, now in the place where he was crucified, there was also a garden. And in the garden, there was a new tomb in which no one had been laid. So, because it was a Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. That's where they put Jesus, because Joseph had a tomb right where Jesus was being killed. Once you see these two people, after seeing what happens here, after seeing Jesus as the suffering Savior, after recognizing that he's the sacrifice for their sin, two people step out and say, we're going to follow Jesus. They wanted to before, but they were afraid to step out. You know, that's probably true of some of us. We know stuff that Jesus did, but maybe if we don't really consider what Jesus did for us, we're afraid to serve Jesus. We're afraid to identify with him. These two men, Joseph and Nicodemus, they step out of the crowd. They start to identify with Jesus. Point number three is this. Take courage to identify with Jesus today. Take courage to identify with Jesus today. Ultimately, all of this is because what Jesus did for you. Because you remember, he suffered in my place. He died as the perfect sacrifice in my place so that I could have all my sins taken care of. Past, present, future, all of it. Nailed to Jesus' cross because Jesus paid for it. I mean, I want you to think about what it took for these men to stand up. It took a lot for them to stand up. It took them seeing Jesus publicly beaten, publicly mocked, publicly killed. But they became unafraid. Earlier in the book, it says that some of these people who were Jewish leaders, they started to believe in Jesus. This is John chapter 12, verse 42 and 43. It says, some of these Jewish people started to believe in Jesus, but for fear of the Jews and the ones who opposed Jesus, they said, oh, I'm not going to follow him. I think Hebrews 13 gives a really awesome summary of all this. It talks about the sacrifices that took place in Israel. And it says, that the bodies of the animals in the Old Testament whose blood were brought into the holy place by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside of the camp. So it's like they used the blood in the temple, but they took the bodies and they burned them outside. The author of Hebrews says, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate. He was excluded outside the gate. He suffered there in order to sanctify. That means to make holy the people through his own blood. Jesus suffers outside. And what did he do when he suffered outside? Again, the New Testament just repeats itself all the time. When Jesus died, what did he do? He actually took your sins on himself. He actually took the punishment for your sin and he sanctified you. He can make you righteous because of him taking your sin. Verse 13 says, therefore, let us, Christians, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. That's the natural response. When we understand the death of Jesus, you know what we start to do? We say, okay, I'll do anything for him. I will do anything for him. I'll, I'll stand up for Jesus because look what he did for me. He, he took my punishment outside the gate. He was beaten, tortured, killed, suffered God's wrath for my sin to sanctify me with his own blood. Yeah, I'm willing to step outside the gate now. And for these Hebrews who listened to it the first time, I think what that usually meant for them was, hey, you might have to displease your family, your Jewish family that never wants you to believe in Jesus. You're gonna have to displease people if you're gonna follow him, if you're going to bear the reproach that he endured. Reproach is the insults, the bad opinions that people had. The author of Hebrews says, you're gonna have to do that if you wanna be aligned with Jesus in his death and get all that righteousness that he's offering. You know, you also gotta be aligned in him in this suffering. And in this life, you are gonna be excluded put outside the gate, so to speak. When you go outside the gate, so to speak, to associate Jesus, with Jesus, what you're going to do 
is it's, it's when you live differently than your friends at school. It's when you don't listen to the same music as your friends at school. It's when you don't dress the same way that they do. It's when you don't laugh at the same jokes that they do. It's when you take a stand against sin in your own friend group, maybe in your small group, taking a stand. It's when you refuse to laugh at some of the sinful jokes that are going on at the lunch table. It's when you risk friendships by inviting people to church. It's when you risk friendships by sharing the truth of the gospel that you know they could be, you could be saved from your sin. You could be forgiven if you trust in Jesus. And in the process, what you do is probably risk those friendships. Right? They might not like you anymore. The author of Hebrews says, you know, we should go outside the gate too. Just like Joseph stood up. Just like Nicodemus came out of the crowd that he was fitting in. He said, I'll, I'm willing to leave that now because I've seen Jesus suffer and die for me. The scary thing is there have been millions of people who are in your situation right now. There have been millions of people who have heard this message that Jesus suffered the penalty for sin on their behalf. There have been millions of people who've heard that throughout the ages who've walked away and done nothing about it. Who've walked away and said, I'm not going to trust in Jesus. I'm just going to hope it all works out for me. There have been millions of people who've done that. It reminds me of that story in Luke chapter 16 where there's a guy who ignores God basically for his whole life. He ignores God for his whole life and he ends up in hell, separated from God. And in this weird little scene, Jesus tells a parable. It's like he looks up and he asks people in heaven, can you just send someone back to tell my brothers? Can you send anybody back? Can you like make some resurrection happen so that all my family will just believe that, that, that you just need to turn to God? Can somebody tell them? And from heaven, the reply comes, they have Moses and the prophets. They have God's word. If they don't believe God's word, they won't even believe if someone died tomorrow and rose again and told you, you should repent and turn to Jesus. If you don't believe God's word, Jesus says, you won't even believe a miracle. The reason I say that this is all scary in a sense is because so many people walk away and don't have their sin debt paid for by Jesus because they don't trust him. For you now, you're, you're a person who knows that. You understand that. Now it's time for you to, to respond rightly to that. And many of you have done that. Many of you have responded rightly to this gospel and you've seen what happens when you turn from your sin. You've seen the change in your life. You've seen the change in your attitudes. You see how God transforms you, but so many of you haven't. So many of you don't trust God. Let me plead with you as that rich man, obviously from a different perspective, but that rich man pleads and wants the people who are alive to trust in Jesus for salvation. As a person who's still alive, I, I want to plead with you, please trust in Jesus for salvation. Don't let this pass you by, please. Let's pray.